So there's a uh, Friday morning men's Bible study that meets here every Friday, I believe. Thank you. And they go through the passage that we are going to be studying together on Sunday mornings. And uh, I have heard that one of the things they try to do is figure out what's Doug going to say about this? What's Doug going to say about that? And then occasionally I hear from them that I went totally a different uh, direction than they had anticipated. I suspect that will be the case this morning. We are slated to cover two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, and we're going to spend relatively little time in Joshua 11 and 12 today. We're going to look at some other passages that I think will give us a bigger picture understanding of what is going on here. So for you Friday morning Bible study guys, I'm sure you didn't see this coming, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to track along with us. So as we've walked through Joshua thus far, we have seen that it is the, the, the telling of the story of the nation of Israel taking the promised land. God had promised it to Israel hundreds of years prior, but now is the time they are entering this land of Canaan. And we have seen the first city that they uh, conquered uh, was Jericho. And it was the, uh, the amazing display of God's power as simply by shouting and blowing trumpets and trusting the Lord, the walls came down and the nation of Israel went in and conquered. Then you had Ai and the, uh, the, the ambush that was set up there. We had the Gibeonite treaty that was, that was created. And then last week, we saw the, uh, the five kingdoms that mounted up a charge against Israel and God proved his power uh, with them by raining down hailstones from heaven, and then Joshua praying, and the sun stood still for an entire day as they destroyed these five kings. Well, through chapter 11 and 12, we see that all the rest of the Canaan land kings pulled together as a coalition to stand up against Israel and fight, and God told Joshua, told the nation of Israel, do not be afraid. I will give you victory. And so these two chapters cover several years of Joshua and the children of Israel defeating the rest of the nations of what's called Canaan's land to occupy that land. It's pretty, it's pretty brutal. We can easily walk through these quickly and, and all the killing that is done by the Jews of these nations, it's easy to slip past it, but these are real people who are being killed. Men, women, children, animals being conquered and, and destroyed by the nation of Israel. It's, it's not something to just read through glibly and quickly. That's basically the story of 11 and 12. 12, in fact, begins with, now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated and whose land was possessed uh, they possess beyond the Jordan, and it just goes on through the rest of the chapter and lists all these kings and kingdoms that were defeated by Joshua and the nation of Israel. I want to drill in to verses uh, 16 through 20 of chapter 11 and then use that as a launch pad to look at a couple of other biblical passages that tell us something about this. So Joshua 11, verse 16 says, Thus Joshua took all that land the hill country and all the Negev, all that land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel and its lowland, 
from Mount Halak that rises towards Sire, even as far as Baal Gad in the Valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hittites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Now, verse 20 is where it gets even harder. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Those are hard words. What God is revealing to us there is God himself worked in the minds and hearts of these Canaanite peoples so that they would come and stand against Israel so that Israel could and would utterly destroy them. It's one thing when we just step back and look at, at the Canaanites and think, well, okay, it un it's understandable maybe that they get slaughtered here. But when you start adding God's work as a component of this, there's something inside us that, that wants to push back on that and say, well, wait a minute, that, that introduces a whole different category to this story. One question is, why the Canaanites? Did they just happen to be here at the wrong place at the wrong time? Why is God giving Israel such absolute and universal victory over these Canaanites? Well, the Bible gives us that answer. These peoples, all these different ites, you know, we've read them over and over again, the Amorites, the Hivites, the, the, uh, all the other termites and parasites, all these other heights that are part of the Canaanites, are kind of summarized in the Canaanite land here. They were wicked, wicked people. They worshipped false gods. The god that is often referred to is the god Baal. Another one of them is Moloch. These are not the one true living god, this is not Yahweh, Jehovah. These are gods that these nations had invented. And they worshiped them. And by worshiping them, they led their people into all kinds of other sins that brought God's judgment upon them. God had warned hundreds of years earlier. We remember we looked at this weeks ago. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land, the land of Canaan, but not yet. It's going to be your descendants hundreds of years from now. I'll give it to your descendants because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They were a wicked people in Abraham's day, and he says they're just going to get more wicked and more wicked over the upcoming centuries, kings teaching their subjects, parents teaching their children to commit great and heinous sin against God. And God says, eventually, their iniquity is going to be so full that I will pour out my cup of wrath upon them. 
So we have to understand it is not as though the Canaanites were good, righteous people who loved God and wanted to serve God, and God said, nope, too bad, I'm going to destroy you. These people were not interested in serving the one true living God. So let's look at this for a minute from God's perspective. To use an analogy, think of a king. Now that's hard for us. We don't live in a kingdom. Sometimes we live with leaders who think they're kings, but we live in a democracy. We live in a republic where we elect leaders and those leaders represent us and they are uh, right in making laws that we are to submit to, but no one person has authority, has absolute authority. The president is not the king. Thought I'd get a few amens there. The president is not the king. He doesn't have the right to just give dictates that the citizens of America have to submit to. He is the executive branch. He executes the laws that are passed by Congress. So it's pretty, pretty foreign to us to think about a kingdom, but, but you've read about them, I'm sure. You know something about kingdoms, right? In a, in a true kingdom, the king has a responsibility to take care of his citizens. He has the, the, the responsibility to provide for them and to enact good laws that will be for their good. That's his right as kings, and his word is law. That's how kingdoms work. And the citizens of the kingdom are to submit to, to obey the king, to follow him, to appreciate what he does, to thank him, to, to show honor to him as the provider of these things. That's the way kingdoms work. Well, God is the king of all kings. He's the king of every kingdom there is. He's the king of everyone in the world, every, every nation on earth. And he provides for, he cares for, he takes care of his creatures. And what he asks for in response is honor and serving him and obeying him. It's the right thing to do for people under his kingship. But what do people do instead? They revolt. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to spend some time here. Paul, the Apostle Paul, looks back at human history, and I think, I suspect he has the Canaanites at least partially in mind here as he writes this. He looks back at human history, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he draws conclusions about what happens to people, to nations who reject the kingship of the one true God. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now let me just pause there for a moment. I want to hone in on the, the tense of the verb. I know some of you grammar aficionados are, are immediately right there. You know what I'm talking about. What tense is the verb here in this verse? Thank you. Present. Which is interesting, because he says, what is present? The wrath of God. Did you catch that? He doesn't say the wrath of God will be poured out or will be revealed. We tend to think of God's wrath as coming in the future. Here Paul uses a present tense and says, in his day even, the wrath of God is revealed. So there is some element of God's wrath that is being revealed presently, that's not waiting for the future. Let's look at it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress 
the truth. So there's some truth that men have and they suppress it. They, they push it down. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. So that's the truth. There is truth about God that men know and they push it down. It's evident. This truth is evident in men and they push it down. Well, how do they know? The end of verse 19. For God made it evident to them. So God has revealed himself to humanity. How? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Here the Apostle Paul is revealing that as human beings observe creation, as we watch the world turn, as we, we watch every day the sun comes up and the sun goes down, as we see seasons come and we get snow and bitter cold, and then those seasons give way to warmer weather, and then sun, and that's when the crops uh, are, are planted and when they are, they're harvested, and then fall's coming and all the leaves are going to fall down to the ground and things are going to go into hibernation, and then we get the bitter cold again, and we see every year after year after year the order of things continues on. Man understands intuitively there is a God who is in control of all this. We know that. Everybody knows that. So there's no excuse. No excuse for what? Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. The fundamental requirement of mankind, honor God as God. You're the creator. You're the provider. You're the one who keeps things happening in cycles. You are him. Honor him as God and give him thanks. Thank you that I have a warm home. Thank you that I have food on my table. We just prayed the Lord's Prayer together. We asked, give us our daily bread, and God does. And he does it even for unbelievers. And the expectation is they should say, thank you, God, for providing this food. But they don't. Middle of verse 21, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, so they think they're smart. They became fools. And how does that folly show itself? And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They look out and see this vast universe created in all the order and the wonderful creation and instead of saying this holy, amazing, wonderful, omnipotent God, I'm going to worship him, they say, no, 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 we're going we're to carve images of birds. I mean, I like birds. They're, they're nice. But I've never been tempted to think, oh, that looks like a God to me. All right, I want to get my appellate gun out and take a few shots. Looks like target practice to me, not gods, other crawling creatures. I mean, at least take a lion or a hippopotamus or something, but small animals, crawling things, 
They carve in these images and say, that's the creator. That's the one we're going to honor and give thanks to. Now, verse 24 is honing in on the key to our interpretation of the Canaanites. What's God's response to this idolatry, to, to making these gods and worshiping them? Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Do you see the wrath that is being revealed here? Remember that's how this section started? The wrath of God is being revealed? God says, you're going to bow down before these four-footed creatures and call that God? You think you're wise and you're doing this kind of foolishness? Fine. I'm going to let you become as foolish as you want to be and it's going to lead to all kinds of foolish activity and wicked activity and impure activity. It's like God says, you're going to bow down before these false gods. I'm going to withdraw any restraint on your wickedness and your folly is just going to be obvious. And it leads to sexual sin and other wickedness. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. You worship a false god, God allows the lusts of your hearts, which are degrading lusts, he allows them to take over. For, verse 26 again, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And people say that the New Testament doesn't ever talk about homosexuality. It doesn't use the word here. It gives us a very detailed portrayal of what's happening. As a result of people defying the one true God and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Verse 28, and it's just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, third time you use that phrase, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with wickedness and all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, and so on and so on and so on. It gives lots of other wicked sins here. Do you see what Paul's doing? When you abandon the one true God, God says, okay, fine, I'm going to give you over to your depravity, and it's going to lead to all kinds of gross and heinous sin, which will then ultimately incur more judgment from God. This is the story of humanity. This is Paul's analysis of all human history, including the Canaanites. So now, now go back with me to Leviticus chapter 18. Let's see, this is February, what? 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. I was talking to her. This is uh, February 14th, so you're, 
some of you are in Leviticus maybe in your Bible through the year plan or did you already quit in like January 20th? You get into Leviticus here and you know this is kind of stuff you think oh this is just oh, it's hard and it's not very exciting and can I skip on through to I don't know the Psalms <laughs> something I like better but Leviticus 18 is telling for our story of the Israelites in Joshua let me read the first few verses here for you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived. So remember, Israel has been led out of Egypt at this point. He says, don't do what the Egyptians did. But then there's another warning here too. Nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So don't do what the Egyptians did, and do not do what the Canaanites are doing. I'm going to take you into this land of Canaan. Don't do what they do. Now, skip forward a few verses with me, because I want you to see where this ends before we look at the middle part. Verse 24. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, the things that he just listed, which we'll come back and look at. Don't defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all of these, the nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Think of that language. I don't like to think about spewing. There are a few things that come to my mind with spewing that I don't really like to think about. Spewing out of your mouth. Are you getting the picture? Do, you want, do, I, do I need to expand so you can come with me on this grossness of spewing? <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Those of you watching online, are you, are you spewing? Don't spew. The land. God says, is spewing out its inhabitants because it's been so corrupted and defiled. Verse 26, but as for you, Jews, you are to keep my statutes, my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations. So the things he's just described, which we will look at, are abominations to God. Neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you, for the men of the land who have been with you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among the people." Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. You see what's going on here? He's saying these nations, these kingdoms in Canaan's land have committed so many of these abominations, detestable things, defiling things, that God says, I am now going to destroy them. The land is literally going to spew them out because they're so wicked. So what are these things? Well, through verse 18, Leviticus 18, 
Moses, God, through Moses, goes into a great amount of detail on incest. And it's all ruled out. It's all abominable. Don't sleep with your mother or your mother-in-law, your sister or your sister-in-law, your daughter or your daughter-in-law, your granddaughter, aunts, uncles, all of those relations, stepmom, stepdad, stepsister, all of those are abominable to God and defiles the nation. You could read that more on your own time if you'd like. Verse 19, approaching a woman during her menstrual impurity. Number, verse 20, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. Just adultery, pure adultery there. So all this sexual sin. Verse 21, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Moloch was a god of, that uh, they used to worship the sun. And they, uh, Moloch was the sun god. And Israel itself would later on offer some of their children to the sun god, to Moloch. Can you imagine God's people? doing that and there's there's different speculations as to what this looked like it involved usually some sort of sacrifice putting the children on uh, on the altar and and burning them others passing them through kind of throwing them through to the other side and notice God says by doing this it's not only that they're killing babies, children, but it's profaning the name of God. In other words, the Jews who would go on and practice this, they would bring their sacrifices of animals to, these, to, to, to God, to Yahweh, but then they would bring their children, offer them to Moloch, and as if Moloch was more valuable and holy to them than Yahweh was. Wicked, wicked. And the Canaanites did this all over the place. They didn't care about Yahweh, of course. They just wanted to appease this God, the sun God. Talk about folly. We are somehow going to win the favor of the sun God by killing our children? Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Verse 23, also you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Those are the specific sins listed here in Leviticus 18 that God says has so defiled this Canaanite people that I'm going to spew them out of the land. So when we get to Joshua and God brings the nation of Israel to destroy them, He's not coming upon a good, righteous, holy people who want to please God. He's coming upon those who for generations have taught their children to worship false gods and to commit all of these kinds of abominable, detestable, wicked sins. And God showed them mercy. They've had it hundreds of years to recognize the God of Israel is the one true God and go make peace with him, try to create a, a covenant with them as the Gibeonites did, and they didn't 
What do they want to do? They want to destroy God's people. And now we see in Joshua 11, God's mercy for the Canaanites has come to an end. And he's judging them. What about the Americanites? Are the Americanites committing any of the abominations whereby God might decide to spew its inhabitants out of the land? Well, there's at least a couple in Le from Leviticus 18 that are rampant in our nation. Homosexuality. Right? One of the things you are not allowed to do in our society is speak ill of homosexuality. Obviously, there is freedom to do it in our nation, but there is a continual push not only for us to tolerate it, but for us to commend it. It's on the list of those things that are so abominable, abominable to God that he destroys the nations for. Adultery is not accepted in totality, but it's pretty rampant. And it's kind of frowned upon, but it's not held up as a, as a great act of wickedness. It's just, you know, it's kind of unfair. It's kind of, you should just divorce them instead of cheat on them kind of thing. But it's growing in acceptance. Incest is still on the taboo list but not because people find it morally reprehensible. It's kind of creepy. It's gross. And we don't want to mix the bloodlines, and there might be some scientific reasons why it's not okay. But go ask people, is this morally wrong? And most Americans have no moral foundation by which to judge it wrong. What are they going to say? Yeah, it's evil. Why is it evil? Who gets to decide what evil is? Bestiality, it's gross, it's creepy. But is it wrong? Does our nation have the moral foundation to declare it wicked? No, we've lost all moral foundation. Where does it stop? There is continual push. If you remember back years ago, decades ago now, when these sexual laws began to change, and people on the right, both the religious right and just the political right, were saying it's a slippery slope. And if you open the door to these things, it's going to continue. And it's going to lead to polygamy. It's going to lead to incest. It's going to lead to, oh, no, no, no. They said, no, it'll never get there. No, 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 no. Well, how many different letters can we add after LGBTQ? Right? What's the plus for? It's because there's a whole lot more sexual wickedness that they're going to keep pushing for. Because there's no justification without God. If you don't believe in the God of the Bible, there's no justification to say any act is wrong. Makes me wonder. Makes me wonder how far down this path do we have to go before the land spews out the United States of America? Now, I have some hope. We know there are at least 500 years for the Canaanites. 
We've not been this wicked for 500 years. We haven't even been this nation for 500 years. But can we question God if he brings judgment on America if we keep going down this path? Of course not. He's right. He's right. You see why we have to preach truth and stand up for truth? On the, at the individual level, we interact with people every day that, are, that have defied the one true God and they need to be reconciled to him. We preach the gospel. There is hope for your salvation. There is hope for forgiveness. There is hope for you to become a friend of this God. He will save you and give you eternal life. We have to do that at the individual level. But also at the national level, if we who know the truth, who know the one true God, if we don't hold the line against wickedness, who will? Who is going to call America to righteousness if not the church? If we, in our offices, in our, in our neighborhoods, with our families, if we don't stand for what is right and true and good and holy, where are they ever going to hear the warning that the wrath of God is being revealed and it could come upon us. I mean, if you go back to Romans 1, if part of that judgment is handing over people to a depraved mind, an argument can be made that we are experiencing the wrath of God in this nation as we continue to push the boundaries of morality. We can't just hold to righteousness in this building or in the comforts of our own home. That does not help our nation. And remember, Jesus is king of kings. He rules them all. We are his spokesmen. We are his mouthpieces. We are the ones who can declare to this nation, King Jesus, your high king, says that behavior is unacceptable. And we must, we must. We can't just stand by and watch our nation go down this path. For it was the Lord, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy. The end of God's mercy for the Canaanites was their utter destruction. Now for the good news. That's heavy, I know. I love how chapter 11 ends. Verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the, their divisions by the tribes. Thus, the land had rest from war. We're in the battle. We've been talking about this for a long time. We're in the battle. We must fight the battle. We must. Our part is to take the gospel to dark places, to dark households, to, to people across the street, across the world. Our job is to stand for truth, to speak truth, to, to walk in righteousness, and to declare what is right. 
and the enemy is fighting, and the kingdom of darkness is still around, and they're hurling their weapons at us, and they want to destroy us, we are to stand firm and, and put on our armor and take the kingdom of darkness. And it's hard, and it's a fight, but there is a day coming when the fight will be over when the high king will return and he will eliminate from our surroundings all the Canaanites. Everyone who is opposed to King Jesus will eventually be removed from our presence and we will rest. We won't be tempted to sin. Can you imagine that? In your own life, can you imagine a day or a week when you weren't tempted to do anything you shouldn't do? That'll be a good day, huh? All of our own temptations, everyone who opposes us, everyone who wants to do unrighteousness, all of that will be removed. We will have complete and total rest. And we will enter into our inheritance with all the saints and it'll be joy, it'll be paradise, it'll be everything Garden of Eden was supposed to be times a gazillion, because we'll be there with our king. That's what we look forward to, it gives us hope, it's what we press on toward, but right now, we're still in the fight. So we keep one eye on that that's coming, and one eye on the battle before us. Because the end of God's mercy for us is not our destruction, but it's eternal life with him forever. Church, our, our neighbors, our coworkers, our families, our nation needs people who have that hope and in light of that hope who are willing to speak the truth of Jesus Christ we are called to do and it may cost us it will cost us but that's what we are called to do may we have the strength and the wisdom to do what we're called to do Dave Wall would you come and pray for us